This is the Kingdom Movement Podcast, a place where we will explore through conversation how discipleship, theology, and community really can transform our world. Now after the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb to look at it. Suddenly there was a severe earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were like snow. The guards were shaken and became like dead men because they were so afraid. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has been raised. And just as he said, um, come and see the place where he is lying. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. So, Paulo, we're starting our final episode, at least on Jesus, the person of Jesus uh, in the gospel narratives. So this episode is Jesus, Jerusalem, the cross, and ultimately the resurrection. So that is Matthew's account of Jesus, um, basically when his disciples, specifically the women, uh, first encounter that this Jesus that they've been following, believing was the Messiah, who's been crucified, killed by the Romans, is in fact actually raised from the dead. So it's exciting news, right, man? Yes, definitely. But before we get to that part of the story, um, we have a lot to cover. But I wanted to start there because I feel like, um, not just feel like, but this is um kind of the great christian hope right the resurrection and so everything that we're going to talk about is leading up to this pivotal moment not just in biblical history but if you're a christian in uh, human history right Um, but we have to backtrack where we left off last episode we kind of talked about the ministry of jesus specifically kind of the key themes like kingdom of heaven the healing the parables um, these just different aspects of Jesus's ministry. And we kind of left with this idea of, well, we ended with Peter making his proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. And from this moment on, um, there's kind of a dark cloud that hangs over as they make their way, their final visit um, to Jerusalem, right? So basically where I want to pick up today, we're kind of skipping over a few key stories, but for the sake of time, we have a ton to cover um, we're going to start with the triumphal entry. I don't know if you know the story off the top of your head, if you want to share it, um, what exactly happens, or if you want me to dive into it. Yes, uh, so the triumph entry is it's about Jesus Christ entering in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe a little bit of context is we have to understand that the people there were living with this hope that the, Messi- the Messiah, the Messianic King, would come and would go straight to Jerusalem, will conquer whatever is ruling in Jerusalem, and would become the king forever. So that's the hope. That's where all things start. You know, so when Jesus, so this story of Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem, the triumphal entrance, and you see all these people having making a party, uh, taking off their clothes, not, I don't know. Yeah, their robes, yes. Taking off their robes and putting putting them on the road and giving out giving up the uh what is that animal? 
donkey. Yeah, giving up the donkey. I think that's that was one of the story that I didn't understand. I would read it, I would see it, and I was like, this guy just gave up his donkey. Uh, but you have to understand that these people really had hope. So them coming, Jesus sending those people and going to the, him saying, hey, the king that has been promised that we've been waiting for him, he's here and he wants to use your donkey. Yeah, to, he say no to that guy. Yes, to go and conquer Jerusalem. He will say, yes, please take it, take it. You know, I want to be part of this story. So that's exactly what happened. That what That's the thing that made this man give up his donkey. So this, so Jesus Christ uh, get on the donkey and then he start um the donkey start walking to jerusalem and people start celebrating and cutting off uh part of the three trees and putting their rogues on the floor so that jesus christ can could uh pass and enter jerusalem yeah and i and this story kind of lays out the first time that jesus is clearly allowing this idea of him being the messiah to be an open open topic right? yes before he's been kind of secretive the only times he reveals his messiahship is either to his disciples in private or to people who were not jews so the samaritan woman and um some greeks as well and so jesus intentionally is now embracing this title right of he is the returning messiah and there's an interesting aspect too that's kind of wrapped up in this we've talked about how the messiah is not a divine title so we can't just think messiah equals god which is kind of what we put onto the biblical narrative because in retrospect we realize that jesus is god in person right mm -hmm. but that's not we have to remember jesus's contemporaries or the people living with him wouldn't have seen it exactly like that it's only in hindsight that they recognize what's really going on but there's also this aspect that as jesus is coming into jerusalem this is God returning to his temple, right? And in fact, the very first place, what's interesting is that Jesus goes to when he comes into Jerusalem is the temple, right? And we'll get to that in a second. So it's this aspect of Jesus symbolically is almost showing in a way, I am the Messiah, but I'm also the God returning to the temple, right? And so anyways, um, one of the aspects that I always hear is, like, how did the crowd so quickly turn on Jesus, right? In the sense of they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, welcome the son of David, right? Uh, welcome the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, you know, on Good Friday, they're chanting, crucify him. I think there's um, two aspects of that. One, when we talk about crowds, you can talk about if you're in a room of 100 people, uh, that's a crowd, right? Um, so not necessarily everyone who is saying these things is the same crowd that's crying out for him to be crucified. I think sometimes we get that mixed up uh, for dramatic effect. Yeah, and I think Luke kind of showed that in the sense like when he shows, he portrays Jesus Christ going into Jerusalem. He portrays also the leaders being there and then the leaders not liking yeah. that has the thing like, that's when they start okay we have to start drawing plans to kill this guy um but yeah please continue no and yeah that's exactly right they say you know tell these kids to quit saying you know that you're the son of david basically and jesus basically tells them if they don't do it the rocks are gonna cry out right which is a direct i think it's important for us to note jesus is intentionally creating conflict between him and the priesthood in the leaders at this point whereas before it was kind of a, a back and forth but he is now striking at the heart of it intentionally 
to draw their attention on him. So we'll get into that when it comes to the crucifixion. But anyways, um, there's also this idea too that there likely was people in that crowd that are ones that are crying crucify him. And why is that? Because of messianic expectations as well. Like they expect a conquering king who's going to come in and create military action. So when Jesus is not what they expect, uh, it's easy to quickly turn on someone, right? You think of a politician that in your mind, uh, you want them to promise certain things. And then when they don't deliver, uh, it's easy for people to turn on that person very quickly. So we have to think in both those realms. Not everyone is the same people. And there's also people that are putting expectations on Jesus that he never created for himself. Yeah. And I think maybe uh, the other story that really plays into that is him going and just starting this conflict with kicking business people you know from the temple and i think that also might have played because they assume like oh this king is coming in and then he will come and we will continue to do whatever we're doing way better without the romans so we'll get richer and everything but jesus just go inside and just starting destroying their business so i think that probably also might have played into that like hey we were waiting for this person to come and vindicate us but that's not what is happening so that's perfect. That's kind of where I wanted to go next is, depending on the gospel, Jesus either immediately goes into the temple and, and knocks everything out, or he waits a day and then he comes back the next day. We'll talk a little bit about those discrepancies and why like they're not that big a deal or how they even prove that the gospel narrative is uh, more true. Um, but anyways, so depending on which gospel you're reading, Jesus goes into the temple and like you said, he kicks all the money changers out. He kicks... Um, basically everyone who's selling things and it's often portrayed at you know I've heard several reasons or rationales behind it um, and I think what I have at least down in our notes is kind of a threefold right it's not that the the money changing was bad let's say because people had to basically the money changers were instead of bringing your dove or goat from 300 miles away you would bring the money equivalent right and you would have to exchange but the point is that the temple had become built not on worship of Yahweh, right? But it'd become a place of greed, of power, and vindication for this kind of ruling priesthood that weren't even Levites, right? They weren't even the people that were supposed to lead the temple. They were in place specifically so that they could basically validate the Roman rulers or Herod, right? And so it had lost its purpose of worship and become basically a corrupt, unjust, unjust and broken symbol. So Jesus is... Um, condemnation is to say that this place no longer represents what it's meant to. Uh, second, the temple was also used by rebels as a vindication for their acts of violence. So what I mean by that is they would look to the temple and say, because the temple belongs to us, basically because Yahweh is with us, he will vindicate or he will back up anything that we do. And this was the same mistake that the Judeans, when we talked about in the in the book of the prophets and in Kings and Samuel, they believed that basically um, when or because they had the temple, God would back up anything that they would do, um, and so that becomes a problem. And Jesus is saying, no, just because you have the temple doesn't mean that God sides with your way of dealing with evil, right? And then thirdly, Jesus saw himself and his disciples as now replacing the temple. Um, Jesus sees in the people of God the place where the presence of God will dwell, which the temple was the only place up until this point 
where the presence of God would dwell. So there's also this idea that Jesus, by symbolic action, is saying this place is no longer representative of the people of God, right? It is in me, in my disciples. Um, and we see that in the sense of when they're walking by the temple as well. This is after he kicks everyone out. His disciples say, look at how beautiful and magnificent it is. And that whole discourse that happens, you know, about the sun turning or the moon turning blood red and the sky turning to darkness. And oftentimes that passage has been taken and kind of mixed into Revelation. But it is a direct, you look at what what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the temple. That same language is the language Isaiah used for the destruction of the temple in his day. And so we have to understand that Jesus, and all this does happen in a time period in AD 70. The temple's destroyed by the Romans. The temple literally becomes the house where all these rebels against the Romans stay. So the rest of the city is taken over. And all these rebels using violence hide in the temple. And that is basically where they make their last name. It becomes a house of brigands, right? The, and so when brigands is used in the Bible, it's talking about people who are rebellious, that are the kind of like the quote-unquote terrorists to the Romans. Does that make sense? So even the two guys that are hung next to Jesus are two brigands. We'll get into that. But uh, to prevent me from rambling on any further, that whole scene is Jesus basically saying, in me, in my people, is now the plan moving forward. The temple no longer is the validation for God's presence. Um, and so this kind of, obviously with his action, um, dovetails into all the dialogues that come from this. So depending on the gospel, Jesus basically, each and every day he goes into Jerusalem, he's having conversations, he's having arguments with the ruling class and elite, and basically calling them out on their crap. <laughs> There's a good way to say it, but I don't know if you have any closing thoughts on temple or any of that stuff, or if you just want to lead us into those conflicts. Um, no, I just, it's just when you read those uh without all this context when you read those passages it's kind of really hard to understand when you're a deep thinker in the sense of what is jesus meaning all with all this and i i remember myself just reading jesus saying this about the temple and always assuming that it was something related to revelation related to uh eschatology and not something that would really that really happened a few years mm -hmm. after 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 he passed. So and also not understanding why the the leaders didn't understand what Jesus was saying because uh, when when he says, for example, destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, you know, they were like, what? This temple was built yeah. uh, in a lot of years, so yeah. now you're saying you would do that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you have any comment about that. Um. Yeah, I think the important note, too, is that Jesus says within a generation, these things are going to happen. And so we can either say that Jesus lied because the end times, how it's normally used, um, hasn't happened yet. Or we can say, what is Jesus really talking about? And 70 AD is within a generation. It's 40 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. Um and so I think we always have to remember, again, cultural context, and we can build these big theological blocks out of something and then recognize like, okay, is this what Jesus really was talking about? Um, I don't know. Is that kind of answer what you yeah, thought was? Yeah, like? definitely. But also one thing that we can see with Jesus teaching, he used, he 
sometimes tend to make things a little bit overstating things mm, yeah, you know uh, exactly he uses hyperbole you know to just say something and i think we normally do that even now we say that a lot and i think sometimes when we read the bible we just assume that we have to take everything literally you know mm -hmm. if you're saying three days and then it's gonna happen in three days but then in three days it, it's not happening so, you know and then sometimes it means his body too in that direct statement sorry is again when we talked about the what jesus is doing that is the idea of now the temple so temple again right is the heaven and earth place the place where people go to meet with god so we always have to think about that like up until Jesus, again, we kind of put our modern day thinking back onto the text. Up until that point, the temple is the only place for people to interact with the actual presence of God, right? Yes. So Jesus is saying, he's talking about his body. And in, I believe one of, the, I, I want to say it's Matthew, directly says that the disciples didn't realize he was talking about his body until after the resurrection. So Jesus is making the claim, I am the temple now. What does that mean? He is the heaven, God, and earth, man, place where people can encounter the presence of God. So in Jesus, we can encounter the presence of God. We don't need to go to a temple. That's that's what's kind of funny to me. I know what the the heart behind saying, like, let's go to the house of the Lord when we talk about church buildings or whatever. But it... it it is almost ironic in the sense of there is no building that is needed to go to now to encounter the presence of God. That was the way it used to be. But in Jesus, being Jesus followers, we recognize that by belonging to him, we actually carry the presence, the living presence, the Holy Spirit of God with us. You know, what I mean? we'll talk about that in the next episode when we talk about Jesus people. Um, but anyways... I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts before we move on? No, I think you. That was that was the next point I wanted to bring about his body and everything. But I think you touched that. So yeah, let's move on. Cool. So now it moves on to Jesus and his woes. Specifically, I believe these are in Matthew um, and maybe Luke as well. But Jesus basically proceeds to call down the corrupt and broken agendas of uh, Jerusalem's rulers. So the priests, the Pharisees, the the Sadducees, and he encounter in the the. Uh, authors or sorry not authors but lawyers of the law basically that being the mosaic law and you see the biblical authors have purposely picked out conversations that jesus has with each of these people right and jesus basically presents to them what they have done with the purposes of god right they've twisted them they've corrupted them they've used them for their own means and now they're basically making disciples he's making disciples and they also are making disciples. And he says, you're making them twice the son of Satan as you are, right? And Jesus is saying in him, he's inviting people to become disciples of the living God in a sense, right? What God has to say. So this is strategic. It's not just that Jesus wants to be a jerk or whatever. Um, to be prophetic is to call out corruption. But he is also purposely drawing the world's evil onto himself. So that's something we'll talk about on the cross because I think the cross is normally only seen. Now, hear me, listener. It is about personal forgiveness of sins and salvation, but that is only one aspect of what's happening on the cross. And we'll dive into maybe the different themes of that, that we've kind of gone through this whole biblical narrative. But part of the cross is drawing on the world's evil onto himself, right? We can all agree that there's not only 
personified evil, but there's systematic evil, right? You know, we talk at least in the states. I don't know about here in Botswana or Mozambique, but that's something that we talked about. Like systematic racism is a hot topic button word that gets thrown around, but it's this idea that systems created by corruption can actually take on a personification of evil themselves, right? Or perpetuate evil because of how they're set up. And so Jesus is directly addressing those kind of systems in his own day, right? By calling them out and by drawing their evil intention onto himself. Yeah, and and one other thing I think is if you read before Jesus would interact to those leaders in parables, uh, he would not be direct to them, you know, and most of the times he would make, he would say something that they even didn't care about understanding. They didn't want to think and understand those things. And if they would understand, they would understand not the right way and everything, you know, and then here now he's just going straight to them. Yes. So that's the difference. That's one of the big difference in the sense of now he's like, I'm not hiding anything from you guys. I'm just coming and calling you out with all these seven vows. Yes. And then he kind of switches gears as well and begins to tell, you know, when we talk about the virgin, we talk about the vineyard. Again, Matthew kind of tells us all of these are representative pictures of um, Israel or Judah in God. Like they're used within prophetic language. So it's really important for us to understand this is contextually Jesus saying to the people of God, the Israelites who got God's chosen people, this was your role and it's time to recognize that this is your visitation by God and he is inviting you to see that role anew, afresh. But the whole point of the, the cross in a sense is to show that even Israel, God's representatives have fallen. They can't complete the mission. So God's personal representative, Israel's Messiah, has to do it on his own, right? Um, but just to give um, an idea of these woes, right? It, I love it. He says, but woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven for you neither enter nor permit those trying to enter to go in. Woe to you experts and Pharisees. You cross land and sea to make one convert. When you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. So like you said, he is going for the jugular at this point. He's no longer holding back. Um, but he's also calling his, the other listeners, the people in the crowd, to recognize, to be ready um, and see the hour that God is visiting them. Don't miss it, in a sense, right? The virgins and the, the candles, right? He's calling them to recognize who he is and don't miss this hour to see that this is actually the visitation of God you've been waiting for, right? And it may not look like what you expect. It may have taken longer than you thought, but he has come and don't miss it, right? Um, so, And like for me, one of the big, I feel like one of the big conflicts in all these is the sense that I feel like Jesus can smell that whatever he is saying, whatever he's doing to all these people, they will never listen to it. You know, they will just continuously deny him. And even just today, you know, you kind of see the trace of all that, you know, even today there are people who kind of deny Jesus and connected to all these. So he, I feel like that plays into this his frustration in the fact that just coming and going straight to them like the main things that you guys should be practicing like justice mercy faithfulness mm -hmm. you know 
you guys are talking about the Bible, you guys are talking about all these prophets, you know, but this prophet did try to practice all these things, but you are not the ones who are practicing that. And just him seeing that that thing will never happen, not will never, but most of them will always turn away from whatever was teaching them. Yeah. And so as the week kind of winds down to a close, Jesus knows that, you know, the Bible alludes to it as his hour is approaching, right? And you can feel the ominous tension kind of building up. And I think another important note is this is Passover. So this is probably, if not the biggest uh, festival or holiday, what we would call holiday, um, for the Jewish people, right? It's the celebration of the great Exodus narrative where God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt. We talked about this. Um, and basically, this is the identifying story, right? This is how we became the people of God. God brought us to Mount Sinai. And Jesus purposely picks this festival, this time, to, in a sense, not co-opt it because he's God. It's already his story. But to take the Passover story and now, within his death and resurrection, wrap that story around himself, right? And so in the Last Supper, which is the kind of symbolic meal that celebrates the Exodus narrative, Jesus now begins to restructure that story around himself. But before he even does that, okay, his whole entry, his whole moment in Jerusalem is about being the king, right? And what's, what's his first act to his disciples in private? You know, it wasn't to organize a battle or to tell them, hey, you know, you need to listen to me some more, but it's to take off his cloak and begin to wash their feet, right? Uh, and Peter even reacts viscerally to it. He says, no, you can't do that, Jesus. You're the king. What are you talking about? Peter, the hothead, who always just says the first thing on his mind. Um, but Jesus shows, gives an example of what a king is actually meant to be, right? A servant to all. So then, yeah, we talk about the cup and the bread. Jesus restructures these symbolic um, Exodus narrative pieces around himself, right? And it's no longer about just a physical exodus out of Egypt, but there's an exodus needs that needs to happen out of death, right? This is death is the ultimate slave master that enslaves all of us. And who, what, what tool does he use? He uses sin, right? Sin binds us to um, the brokenness of our lives. We are enslaved to it like Pharaoh, and we can't get out, right? We need a divine intervention from the Creator God. And so Jesus is saying, through my blood and my body, this is the way out, right? This is the way forward. Um, and then he goes on to have, uh, in at least the book of John, other narratives or other discussions about abiding in him, right? And I don't know if you want to throw in your, your two cents here before um, we dump, dive into that. I was trying to look for questions while you were talking, in my mind, look for questions because I feel like this part is where you can feel confused mm. because you have this concept of Passover that comes from the Old Testament. And then you have this concept, Jesus bringing the, that concept to today, to the time he was there, but then reshaping it around him. And I just feel like when I was growing up, when I was reading this story and just also being part of the, uh, the Holy uh, Communion, uh, I always felt confused um, with all the things that were going on. I would understand, okay, the blood means, the, the wine means the blood of Jesus, the, the bread means his flesh and everything. But it was 
always hard for me to kind of connect them and i just feel like a lot of people also still have this question so i was just trying to look for questions that can maybe help uh how can i say make that a little bit easier for listeners back home to understand no that's great i think even the word passover uh, is calling back to a very specific moment in the Exodus narrative. And Jesus is called the Passover lamb, right? Um, and so it's interesting, not interesting, it's incredible just how connected the biblical narrative is. We talked about, that's the whole reason why we did this podcast, but the Passover moment was actually when the angel of death visits Egypt. And Abraham, or sorry, not, I always get Abraham and Moses mixed up. Right, Moses is instructed by God to kill a lamb, all the Israelites are, to kill a lamb and to paint his blood over the doorpost of their home so that the angel of death would pass over their home and not take their firstborn. Now get this, Jesus is the firstborn, the first fruits of God. If he's the Passover lamb, it is by his blood that covered. We talk about that and we're like, what the world does that mean? But it's not like putting it on your body. He is the blood that covers over our home, us, so that death passes over us. That through the sacrifice of Jesus being the Passover lamb, death no longer has the final word over us. And so Jesus is basically saying when he talks about the cup, right? That through my blood, my sacrifice, my giving of myself, death no longer has the final word over anyone who who covers their, their lives with me, right? And then the bread is, they were meant to make this bread so that they could quickly leave Egypt. And so it's this idea of like through the body of Jesus, we are now leaving the land of slavery, the land of death, and going into the promise that God has given us, right? And we'll have to pass through the waters, which baptism kind of takes that up, right? That we're passing through the waters, the Red Sea, and once we get to the other side, that is where God gives us his law, His, which is now written on our hearts. And now we are invited by him to be led into his promised land. And so the, these are the ideas that Jesus is using to symbolically represent what is going to happen in our lives, right? That it goes from just the story of Israel at one time in history to an invitation into God's good promises for the future. I don't know if you feel like that helps at all. Yeah, definitely. I think that 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 that's a bit more detailed and I think it will help. But also for a listener, if you didn't understand, just fire a question and then at the end we'll have a Q&A and we'll try to go deeper. Is there anything that you want to add to? I don't know if you have any thoughts that you feel like helped you um, gain a better understanding of all of that. Um, yes, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Well, we can dive in the next topic and then if you feel like something pops up, give it a shout. So uh, the main one that I want to focus on in the last supper, because there's a ton, especially in John, is this idea of abiding in me, right? So Jesus is basically sitting down his guys, and this is his final moment, right, before his death, and they still don't understand. They're still confused. They're still like, well, what do you mean? Just show us the Father, and Jesus says, can't you see that looking at me you see the father right but then he gets into this long narrative about abiding right about being the branch abiding in the vine and essentially he's saying if you want this life 
obedience to my word, obedience to who I am, obedience to my life, which is something we practice in kingdom movement is when we read the Bible, we want to put it into practice. We want to put it into quote unquote obedience. This is how we show that we love Jesus and that when we do that, the fruit or the nutrients from the vine, his life can, um, can come into us, right? That's how we stay connected is not by just believing and thinking all the right things, but by actually becoming the kinds of people um, essentially sourced from the life of Jesus, right? That it becomes who we are at our core. And the way that we do that is by practicing what Jesus has commanded of us, right? So he leaves this invitation um, no longer to be servants, no longer to be just, you know, the people who run around for the master, but he invites us to be his friend, right? He says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And so if you can imagine that, here's the creator of all things who has all the right to just tell us what to do, but instead he invites us into friendship. The At the very first episode we did, you talked about the, it's a weird because it can have other conversations, but the love triangle of the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son. And this is again, the re-invitation into that love, right? To no longer view ourselves as like the servants of this God, but to join as friends in what this God is doing for creation, right? And we do that by obedience. Yeah, and I think that ties straight to the idea of partnership in the book of in, in Genesis. Because in Genesis was not about this man just being the worker in the sense of just going there and then doing all the work. Yeah. while God is coming and supervising him. But it was this idea of a partnership, God making this place and then placing the human being and then inviting him to yes. be part of all whatever that was happening and just giving him authority in the sense of you can really rule this place with me and be part of it. And then that that get destroyed. And what happened is after that, the relationship is kind of with these laws that people have to follow and then they struggle following those laws. And I feel like what Jesus Christ is doing here, he is restoring that idea of partners. You are no longer a servant. You are no longer someone who I am coming and telling what to do, but you have to come and abide in me, come understand my heart, understand where it comes from, everything that I'm telling you to do, where it comes from, and then you take part of that you are you wear this cloth of love and um, because you understand what i'm doing and then go out and break make the kingdom break into people's life because you know that i'm not only doing this to give you a set of rules but it's because this is the best thing to do this is where we're all supposed to go that's a really really good point and i think again it calls back to the original intent of like also that we co-rule with god by abiding in god not by trying to do it on our own but by attaching our lives to him right and that was the whole issue with adam and eve so anyways i think uh, another important note that i didn't have written down is this idea of jesus sympathy you know in hebrews it says we have a high priest that can sympathize us in every way in one of the deepest pains that you have to imagine for jesus is betrayal so during this whole ordeal, there's a guy named Judas. Huh? I think even non-Christians know what Judas is just because of how infamous um, this person becomes. But he decides to betray Jesus. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us necessarily his motivation. They do say he was greedy or whatever. Um, but you can imagine he is one of those guys that realizes now that we're in Jerusalem that Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah that I expected, right? And so... Um, when he becomes the kind of Messiah he doesn't expect or want, 
he decides to betray him, right, for personal gain. And how many times both in our smaller lives, in our individual lives, have we felt that sting of betrayal? Maybe, you know, not to the extent of someone betraying our lives, but breaking our trust, right, by us offering every good thing, having an open table, even sharing our last supper with this person, um, and then them stabbing us in the back to, you know, at higher levels in bigger situations, whether it be government or politics or, you know, uh, neighbor versus neighbor or tribe versus tribe, right? That trust is broken. We see at the center of this story of Jesus dealing with evil because we have to understand the cross is God's solution, his, um, his answer to evil. He takes even betrayal at the deepest level on himself, right? The reason why that's important is we get to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus takes his disciples and he knows the hour has come, right? Judas has betrayed him. Um, he has gone out to basically get the, the escort that he needs to take Jesus prisoner. And Jesus goes into the garden and he invites his friends, right, to pray with him during this time of hardship. And even they imagine your closest friends, you know, they can't, they don't understand what's happening, right? They're tired. They keep falling asleep. But Jesus, in this vulnerability, we get a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus, you know, that this isn't just God who's invincible and just kind of like following the step by step to just get it done with. But Jesus is fully human. He understands the weight of what's about to happen to him. And he's afraid. He's alone. And he wants to escape. You know what I mean? How many of us have felt that before? Right? The weight of responsibility, the weight of what we know we sh should or can do or need to do, even if it's going to personally hurt us. And he sees, you know, he sets this great example of faithfulness with the, to me, one of the most powerful and humbling utterances, not my will, but yours be done, right? And this is what perfect submission, perfect obedience to the Father looks like, that even my life isn't so important that it's not worth laying down to be obedient to my heavenly father because we may see this as sadistic or like why would god do this but the point is jesus knows that the father is going to prove him in the right and that in order for evil to de be defeated it's not to fight evil with evil but for the ultimate self-giving love to lay itself down and then be vindicated by the creator right but the cost the price would to go through it is immense it's just like in our own lives right in order to give love that is undeserved to someone else there is a cost to that jesus is not naive to that in fact he leads the way in it um you have any thoughts bro <laughs> um i think i was thinking a little bit ahead while you're talking so i'm I, i'm gonna wait leave this comment because at the cross because i've read something about also about gethsemane uh, about all the of jesus um yeah him sweating blood and everything and i don't know if you have any comment for that but here's what i here's what i've read um i don't know if it was any says no i don't think it was just lewis but everything but it was just this idea of Jesus struggling with all that, with all whatever it was, it was to come, and then just bringing this idea of what happened when we kind of not feel like we don't have God's hope. You know, we start becoming these people who really struggles and really 
look for that hope and can't find it yeah. you know and then they lead that to what what I'm to Jesus cry in the in the cross like Eli Eli mm. you know like God why did you abandon me and yeah. everything you know but I don't know if you have anything um yeah we can wait till we get to the yeah. cross on that I think um just my only other thought is this idea of uh in prayer, so in this moment of prayer with Jesus, so I wish we would have touched on this a bit more in the last episode, but Jesus led a life of prayer. The Luke especially is constantly talking about how Jesus gets away with the Father to be in his presence, right? We talk about the wilderness when he went out in the wilderness by himself and fasted. Um, and you and I and uh, my wife, uh, we just finished a, a book as a team talking about praying like monks, living like fools. And there's a just such a good line in that book that I love. And he talks about even with Jesus in the pressure moments, in the moments where everything's on the line, like in the garden, we don't rise to the occasion in the sense of we don't become super spiritual in that moment. We actually fall to the level of our practice, our devotion. And because in those moments we're desperate, there's there's no way we can willpower it. And so Jesus's life of devoted prayer to the Father in his moment of crisis didn't rise to the occasion, but he fell to his level of practice, which was in every situation he went to the Father, right? And so in his hour of greatest need, even in desperation, even in his, you know, painful cries of like, God, I don't want to do this, because his practice, because his life was a consistent pattern of always being obedient to the Father, in his moment of weakness, he fell to that level, which was a high level, right? A level that most all of us would like to get to. Um, but I think it's just a good example of like, Jesus um, sets the example of we need to become people who put into practice being time with God, right? In prayer, because in our moments of greatest need, um, we turn to what we have automatically practiced, right? So a lot of people turn to alcohol, to drugs, to, in depressive moments, because that's, They've never practiced turning to the Father in those hard moments uh, and in their daily lives in general. But anyways, so Jesus is betrayed. Judas shows up with the escort. The disciples, specifically Peter, kind of try and put on a blustering show. He pulls out a sword, cuts off someone's ear. Jesus says, this ain't the kind of kingdom I'm trying to start. You know, he says to these guys, you come with me swords and all these things. And I've been in the temple every day teaching. You know what I mean? So why I'm not that kind of rebel leader, right? But this is the hour in darkness is going to have its way for a moment, right? Um, but he's not, he even says, you know, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. So this is Jesus, self-giving love again, laying his life down. And I think this is a good place to pause. We'll go into the trial, the crucifixion, and then the greatest day in history, the resurrection, when we come back. Hey guys, this is Jake. If you are currently a university student on a campus in Botswana, we want to extend an invitation to you to get plugged into a discipleship group. So if you're interested, if that's something you want to do, if you want to begin to be a part of this family we call Kingdom Movement, we would encourage you to go into this episode's bio. There should be a link to our Instagram page. You can send us a message, and we will make sure to connect to you at a time and a place that works best for you and your schedule for school but we don't want you to miss this opportunity to get plugged in and a part of what God is doing on the university campuses here because we believe that you're a vital piece to what God wants to do to bring his kingdom, his wholeness, and his healing 
to the nation of Botswana and to the university specifically. So reach out to us today, guys, if that's something you're interested in. All right, thanks. Hey guys, uh, this is Jake and Paulo back from our break. And in the second half, we are gonna talk about the trial, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So basically, Jesus gets arrested in the garden, that's where we left off, and he's taken before what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is basically just like the Jewish council. They take care of um, different law issues and all that good stuff. So basically, Jesus is brought before these guys, and people go up and they start making all these claims about him that aren't true, um, but basically trying to find a charge to bring him before the Romans, right? Because the Romans are the only ones that are allowed to kill people. Um, the Romans don't like other people killing people. They like to kill people. So uh, they're trying to find this charge. And finally, kind of Jesus does it for them uh, in the sense of they basically ask, who are you, right? Are you the Messiah? Just tell us straight up. Is this your claim? And instead of saying that he's the Messiah, he quotes directly from Daniel 7. We've talked about Daniel 7 and says that he is the son of man and that they will see him vindicated by God, basically. Um, and again, this is often taken as Jesus' second coming, but it's an actual upward movement to God, not a downward movement from God. So this is about Jesus' crucifixion, even if they can't see it, because the crucifixion and resurrection is about Jesus being vindicated and being placed at the right hand of the Father. That's what this is about, his vindication. And so they see this as a claim to being like God, right? This is why they freak out and they tear their robes and stuff, because to be at the right hand of the Father means to be equal with the Father, and they just cannot have it, right? And so they've decided, yes, we're going to put Jesus to death at this point. I don't know if you have something you want to share on that on the trial in the Jewish side, or if we can move on to the Romans. Yeah, I think we can move on. Cool. So then they move on to the Romans. They pass him off to Pontius Pilate, who's kind of the, the governor or the ruler in Jerusalem. And he's in town, probably overlooking to make sure there's no riots or issues because it's Passover, any sort of like patriotic holiday. It wouldn't be a festival. is prime time for these kind of things to happen, right? And so Pilate kind of has these back and forth conversations with Jesus. Um, and he basically says, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, you know, goes on to have a dialogue with him and says, you know, no one has handed me over except for the, you know, or I, you know, I've given myself over and the people who have handed me over are guilty. And they go into a dialogue of what is truth, right? Um, and Pilate basically can see for himself that this guy is no threat to Rome, right? He's not raising armies, whether, you know, he claims to be a messiah or whatever. He's not like um, a violent figure. He's not going to mess with Roman power, uh, at least from his point of view. So he kind of goes through the ceremony of trying to wash his hands, right, of the whole whole deal. Um, but the, the priests aren't having it, right, because he is a threat to their power. Jesus is. Um, and so it becomes, again, you know, we talk about what does God do with broken systems? Um, when we talk about injustice, right, it's a big hot button word, um, and when we talk about corruption, when we talk about religious injustice, religious corruption, the greatest religious system of Jesus' time, the Jewish temple and priesthood, and the greatest quote-unquote justice system of Jesus' time, the Roman justice system, both put Jesus on the cross unjustly, right? Because of power, because of greed, because of 
fear, right? Pilate is afraid that the crowds are going to turn into a riot. So eventually he just caves to what the Jews want. And so we can see that Jesus, the creator God, what is his answer to these things? He takes their their wrath, their evilness, their corruption, their injustice on himself, right? Again, there's that sympathy for the thousands of millions of people who have lived in unjust systems or situations. And they wonder, maybe they wonder, what has God done about it? But God has stepped into that situation with them. So yeah, so Jesus is eventually convicted, um, even though he's innocent. Pilate basically presents another guy, Barabbas, Bar-Jesus, right? So here's two Jesuses being presented. The gospel authors are doing this on purpose. And he is incarcerated or put in prison because he is a rebel. It says a brigand or a robber or whatever, but he is a, the reason why he's been in prison by the Romans is because he was leading rebellion against Rome. So he is in a way what people expect the Messiah to be. So you, the authors are doing this on purpose. They're showing you here is Jesus, the Messiah, who doesn't look like the Messiah. And here is this other Barabbas who is the stereotypical what people want Jesus to be. And they choose Barabbas over Jesus. But again, this is a part of God's self-giving love that he dies for the Barabbas, right? Uh, or in place of the Barabbas. So I don't know, at this point, I'll stop. And if you have any thoughts, please interject. Yes, um, I think one of the other points that needs to be highlighted here is the fact that who is judging Jesus, who is saying that are the people, it's not, a, 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 are these people who Jesus was supposed to come and defeat, you know, mm-hmm. who everyone else was expecting him to overthrow, you know, and become the king. Because those are the ones who came, those are the ones who were hostilizing the the people of God. Those are the ones who came and conquered the the land of the people of God. So they were expecting the Messiah to be the one who comes and judge them. But then now are the ones who are coming and judging uh, the person who they thought was supposed to be the one who would free them from from those people. So it's just this idea of an upside down kingdom in the sense of Jesus is not focused on destroying the evil and everything, but he's really focused on your position, how your heart sees everything, how your heart sees all these people. So Jesus, yeah, like you're saying, the expectation is that he defeats the Romans, but some now he's being put on the very, the very weapon, the cross, that the Romans used to crucify rebels, right? And so it, by every sense of the word, Jesus being crucified is a failed Messiah. He has failed in the Jewish mind to defeat the pagans. He's just another claim, a person claiming to be this messianic figure and is just defeated by the pagans like what's happened before, right? So this is, you have to understand that, right? Like the cross is in itself. If we just had the cross with no resurrection, there is no victory, right? This is just another failed Messiah. But as we'll see, the whole point of the gospel narrative is that Jesus didn't die the death of a cross because he was like all these other people with political agendas. Um, And that's not how you defeat Rome, right? You defeat Rome with self-giving love. Rome being the empire physical representation of the spiritual darkness that lays behind Rome, right? And the same with the priesthood, the corrupt systems of religion that have a gleam of like 
good, you know, posturing towards God, but really behind them there's a darkness, there's a sinister. So the sinister sinister power, which is personified in the person of Satan, right? We talk about Satan. These dark powers are what are colluding together to put Jesus on the cross, right? Yeah, and I feel like this is where if you were to give up on Jesus' story, like here, that's when you would probably fall into like other religions like Judaism and everything because like oh yeah this is one another one failed failed messiah just like the ones we spoke about uh during the inter in between uh episode you know so I feel like this is where a lot of a lot of those religions kind of dropped the story and just came up uh, something else that is not Christianity. Yep. So then basically after Pilate has Jesus flogged, he carries his cross out. He has a sign nailed above his head, King of the Jews. So the Pharisees and the priesthood, they complain about this. They don't like it. And the whole reason for that is Pilate is doing this ironically. He's doing it to say, this is what happens to King of the Jews. You know what I mean? It's a, a Roman power move to say, this is what Rome thinks of your king of the Jews, right? And this is what Rome will do to them if you make this claim. So it is very much a discouragement for anyone to take that title for himself. Uh, And the Pharisees and the priesthood don't like it because it's an insult to them, right? It's a personal dig at this idea of messiahhood. Um, And so it's not that either one of them are sympathetic. Pilate is not being sympathetic to Jesus, and the priesthood is not being, you know, um, the bad guys in this situation. It's both have selfish motivations for wanting that not to be but the irony is that the crucifixion is really what is making jesus king when jesus says to john and james when they say that they want to be at his right and left and he says i don't know who's going to be at my right and left and you don't know what you're asking they don't realize that there is going to be someone at his right and left but they're going to be crucified right beside him right at his coronation yeah. um yeah and, go ahead. that's why i like these this whole act of this conflict of Rome coming and making fun of them and then making fun of Jesus and the the priests and then the priests feeling bad about it, you know. But then just for Jesus, that has a meaning, you know. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what is happening, you know. Jesus Christ is being crowned, you know, literally. And so it's just Jesus Christ. It's what, what we see in the Bible. In the whole story of the Bible, it's God taking what is supposed to be something bad or something wrong, what humanity are doing uh, for evil, and God taking that and transforming it and making it for good. What David, uh, is it David? No, what uh, Joseph says you know, to his brothers, like, you did this for evil, but God is making it for good, for his good. And it's exactly the same thing. They're doing this to humiliate everyone who comes up and declare that title but then jesus christ is taking that title and assuming like yes actually this is what is actually happening so at this point you know we'll kind of get to what happens next but i want to talk a little bit about why the cross right what happened in the sense of like what was the meaning behind it why is it really jesus's coronation to become king representative substitution and defeating of the powers are these kind of ideas that are behind it so i just want to pause for a moment and talk a little bit about that like why did jesus need to die like sometimes it's seen as oh everyone was really naughty so god needed to punish someone so he decided to hurt jesus instead of hurting us but that's a caricature for sure 
But what exactly is substitution, right? Substitutional atonement is the fancy theological word. But why did Jesus need to die? You know what I mean? Why is that God's solution? Um, but I think it's really important to understand the curse, right? The curse of sin. Sin, again, is missing the mark, not being that image bearer that God created us to be, is death. So why is it death? Why is that the curse? Well, if God is the creator, God, right, if he is the giver of life, outside of him, there is no other life because it doesn't exist, right? If God created everything, there's no other place that life can come from. It's not a, a question of, well, why is God mean? It's like, no, God made it. So without the maker, it can't exist, right? So our breaking of our function and our breaking of relationship with the literal source of life, there is no other way, right? There is no other course to take a road to go we have to have god in order to have life because he's he's the giver he's the source of all life um and so this idea of the curse of sin not bearing god's image it has to be dealt with right it's not like something we can just go around and say oh you know it's all right let's just all pretend like it didn't happen and move on because it has deeply fractured something inside of every human heart um do you have something yes um is this idea, I think the idea the Bible brings up in the darkness and the light, I think that's a really good image, image for that. You know? And when we see it, it's really like this darkness that we are assuming is us wearing that darkness through our, in all our body. But God is not that. God is the opposite of that. So how can a humanity, how can a dark humanity co co exist? with this uh, God who's light, you know. The darkness has to be dealt with. The darkness has to be cast away from the humanity so that humanity can come to God, you know. Humanity can come closer to God in that. And I, uh, and that's that's where all the idea of sacrifice in the in, in Old Testament comes from, you know. And we had this God that all the sins of the humanity, all the sins of those people would be cast into that goat so kind of substitution taking all the sin and casting it in and sending it, sending it out you know so that there is no sin and then come this ritual of just making them uh holy pure and everything and i think that's the next part you were coming to well it's this idea too of like there's a corporate missing the mark so the individual level all of us have sin right paul talks about that um but there's this idea of the corporate meaning all of us so there's the individual level but then there is the mass humanity level of missing the mark when i say missing the mark that's sin so i'm going to use missing the mark though because i feel like it's a better determinative or giving better definition of bearing that image that all of us were meant to to bear so what was the god solution was covenant so he makes a covenant with the family right so in our first episode we talked about that image bearing failure then we talked about the covenant family created first in Abraham and then through the Exodus Israelite people. But then we see as priests, representatives, they failed. They couldn't represent humanity. They couldn't be that light, right? They didn't become the light in the darkness. They just became darkness itself. But God, being faithful to his covenant, right? He's faithful, always faithful on his end of the deal. But what's so amazing, I think, about the person of Jesus is he is Israel's representative, meaning that what is true about Jesus is true about his people. That's how kingship worked in those days, right? Like when we looked at the, the whole chapter of Kings, it would say because of the king, the people did X, Y, and Z. Because the king allowed it, the king permitted it, the king 
um, promoted it, right? So the king, in a way, has a responsibility for all of the people. So Jesus, by becoming Israel's king and fulfilling, right, the end of the covenant, it's almost as if God is so faithful to humanity that he wasn't just content to hold up his end of the deal. He actually became human himself, and not just human, but Israel's representative, the covenant people's representative, to fulfill their end of things, to take the curse of covenant breaking on himself, right? So that we didn't feel the sting and so that he could lead us out the other side. And that to me is just so mind-blowing. That, Like if you want to know the love of God, like he didn't have to do any of that, you know what I mean? But he chose to do that by becoming the representative of Israel and in turn as a priestly nation, the representative of all nations, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that comes into... The question like why it had to be Jesus who is, uh, who, is, who is crucified because he's the one who conquered the or deserved that authority in the sense like he's the one who all the things, all the uh, government stipulations, he's the one who went there and made it right and make every, made everything happened and he made it, he was obedient until the last moment. So this is the person that is actually, if there is something that will actually to happen in the sense of vindicating, in the sense of uh, saving the people of God, that is the person who had that right because he's the person who showed that he can really make all the things, all the government, the person who um, obeyed every, everything in the covenant. That's why the Bible, all these books, always connect to the stories of the Old Testament in the sense like, Jesus did this right, did this right, did that right. And so the next kind of aspect, that is the dealing with sin part of it, the substitution in a way, or the stand-in. But there's also this idea of defeating the powers. So what does that mean? Before the cross, there was a distinction between the people of God, Israel, Judah, and the nation. So Greeks, Gentiles, pagans, all of these were like references to basically everyone outside of Judaism, in a sense. And there was not an open way unless they became Jews unless they were willing to literally come under the Mosaic law, there was not an understanding that these people um, were the people of God, right? They were people to be avoided, people to be um, totally separate from because of a fear of pollution, right? And we kind of talked about that in the in-between episode of like this holy distinction and compromising with culture and all these things. But I love this. So there's a, a verse in John 12. So it, this is during the time when Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? And it says, and some Gentiles or Greeks or pagans basically come up and they say they want to see Jesus, right? And in response, Jesus goes on to say this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now he said this to indicate clearly what kind of death he was going to die. And so Jesus, in response, says that there are powers that are controlling this world, darkness has blinded the nations, right? That they serve idols, they serve these gods, they serve demonic spirits, right? That are behind those gods. But now that he is being lifted up, crucified, lifted up on the cross, the power of that darkness, those, those beings that lay behind the pagan gods and everything else, their power over people's lives is now broken. It's being cast out. There's a new king of the earth, right? The Messiah has come. 
And so now he's going to draw all people unto himself. And as we'll talk about in the next episode, that's exactly what happens. Jesus's words are true. But I think because we live in a post-Christian, or like in a Christian world, a post-resurrection world, we don't understand the gravity of this. Like, because, you know, there's Africans, there's Native Americans, there's Europeans, a huge, you know, most people think of Europeans as the source of Christianity, which is not true. All of us are inheritors of what is happening, the defeating of the powers, because all of our ancestors, our great ancestors, worship pagan gods. You know, mine might have been the Viking gods, yours might have been ancestors, Native Americans, ancestors, you know what I mean? All these people worshiped these different powers, but in the cross, their power to control us was broken, right? And there is a new Lord to worship. And I think that's an aspect that doesn't really get touched on because we don't really live in that reality. But, sorry, I'm rambling on. But I think that is super relevant to the African culture where people have a great fear of ancestors in the sense of if they betray their ancestors that they're not going to protect them anymore. And that is the exact thing that's being addressed here is the power of darkness holding on to people's lives, making them think that maybe I need Jesus and something else. But to come under Jesus's kingship means that those powers no longer have any authority over you. There's a new authority that supersedes them. And I, you know, I'm sure you can add on to that or speak to it much, much better than I can. Yes. Yes. Um, um, oh, you said, oh, a, you lot said a lot of things. <laughs> Sorry, I'm bro. Trying to like, process <laughs> all, all, all the things um, <laughs> at the same time. But I just also feel like something to add into that is the sense of I like this image of having a ruler, having someone who's kind of um, having this conflict, these two sides, one side that is fighting for a good and then one side that is fighting for an evil and sometimes we don't notice that but if we kind of just stop and just think about it you know there is something in us that is always pushing us you know to the wrong side you always feel like there's this tension in us one side push pulling out to this side and then the other side putting out pulling out to, to the other side that's why sometimes uh, these cartoons uh, where you, you're watching the cartoon and then this side appears one demon yeah. on your left shoulder and then the right shoulder appears one angel, you know, like, and then they both start fighting and, hey, come do this and come and do that, you know. It's a wrong view, of course, but then it kind of represents that, that thing that happens in our mind, you know, in that sense. And what I want to say with that is that Jesus Christ him all doing everything in the cross is him defeating the authority that those things have. They still, they are still there, and then I feel like the the story shows us that at the end that thing will come and be destroyed fully, yeah. you know. But it's still there. But Jesus Christ, with with his death, is him uh, taking out the power that all yeah. these things have in the sense that you can choose and you can follow Jesus Christ if you want and not give attention to that's great that side and so talking about broken systems so with rome the rome rome and the dark powers that lie behind rome so this is both in the demonic and in the let's say physical empires even the empires empires and air quotes that we live in today right whether they call themselves that or not the greatest tool that anyone can have to coerce you is death so Rome used death as the tool to get people to do what they wanted. The dark powers used the fear of death. 
why do we do things for the ancestors? Because there's a fear that lies behind them that something bad is going to happen to me. And so the greatest tool that the enemy has to control us is the fear of death. And so what we'll see in the resurrection is the, the breaking of the enemy's greatest tool. That if we really, really believe what Je if Jesus was raised from the dead, and that if we are under that same covering by being his people, the greatest thing that someone can use to threaten us is now taken away. But I think the question is with the resurrection, and we can, we'll get into that in a second, is do we really believe the results of the resurrection? Do we believe that we will really be raised? Because that's the kind of promise that's happening in this story, right? So Jesus takes on the broken systems. Um, and he takes their full force on himself um, and even takes on or stands beside those who use the broken means to fight them. So violent revolution. So Jesus becomes the answer to the great, great question, right? Why doesn't God deal with evil? He did, but not by snapping some magic fingers and making it go away as if that could actually happen, but by taking evil's full force on himself, right? And that may not comfort people. I don't know, you know, that God's answer is not just to make all our problems go away, but God's answer was to take all our problems on himself um, and to sympathize with us and to stand with us and to empower us through them. Um, but that is the answer that the Bible gives us. You know what I mean? So we have to sit with that. We have to let that sit in our hearts and say, is this, um, can I live with that? You know, am I okay to understand that? Uh, and then lastly, it's his coronation, right? The cross is his throne. What was done in mocking tribute is actually his enthronement into his left and his right, right? We talked about that, um, where the people to his left and his right. And it wasn't James and John. They didn't understand what they were asking. But before we dive into the resurrection, do you have any other thoughts? Yes. Uh, I was watching, I was reading news um, this week, last week. And one of the big news is about this lady who they were it was during a funeral you know so it was during her funeral and everything and suddenly she started breathing you know so yes you know suddenly she started breathing like oh no she's not dead and everything you know so imagine someone's funeral and then that happened you know and i feel like because of everything that has been happening and i feel like because of the idea of christianity sometimes we take for granted like how people back in that time saw death as something that it's irreversible you know something that if it happened it happened if it happened it's over now we have a lot of other religions you know claiming that oh there's no death is not the, the last thing but we have to see that for them if I'm coming and killing you, it's me telling you, yes, I won, you know, I won at the end. I am the one who is victorious, you know. So the idea of Jesus conquering death, it's something that has a really, really, really deep meaning, you know, in the sense like, oh, this big power that was the thing, it's no longer the thing, you know. And I just feel like sometimes as Christians, mainly as Christians, we just see things and like, oh, no, that's not a big deal. The death is not a big deal, but it is a big deal in the sense of if I end up killing, you know, it's just the same, the thing that coming me and the death coming and say, yes, I won against everything you were saying or everything you were doing. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of things I think I'll just keep doing. Okay. So, you know, we get to the day between. So Joseph of Aramea gets permission from Pilate to take Jesus' body, puts him in 
a tomb that's never been used, which is important in the sense of it's not going to get mixed up, right? We're not going to get Jesus's body confused with anybody else's. The women um, who have been following Jesus, including his mother, see where Jesus is buried, so they know where the tomb is. All these things are intentional, right, by the author to tell us, like, this wasn't a mix-up. It wasn't like they went to the wrong tomb or something. Um, and I think we'll, we should do a whole entire episode on, like, kind of an apologetic of why the resurrection is believable, right, from the gospel accounts. But that's not what we're trying to do here. It's more about the narrative. So anyways, you can imagine in that day between, though, that all of Jesus' disciples are crushed, right? They have devoted everything to this guy, and now the messianic hope is gone. You know what I mean? They, They believed he was the answer, and they still didn't understand that this is what actually had to happen. Um, and I think it's important to sit in that for a moment, right? And to just think about, like, what are the hopes that have been crushed in our own lives, right? That we don't believe there's any sort of resurrection life that can be breathed into them. Um, because that's what the day in between is all about. Um, but as we know, Easter breaks in, in kind of an unexpected way. The women go to the tomb to kind of prepare the body. And all of a sudden, an entirely new world open up opens up in human history and one of the amazing things is women's testimony was not a valid testimony in that day people didn't regard women's testimony as valid or important but the biblical authors do not shy away from the fact that it was women who discovered who were the first witnesses to the resurrection and so they get there and angel says he's not here like we read the passage at the very beginning he is risen and all the theological implications that we were just talking about with the the crucifixion only matter because of the resurrection, right? So this day is the day that Jesus is vindicated, proving that everything he said, the life that he's presented to people, the hope of future resurrection is actually true, right? The Father has proven by raising Jesus from the dead that this actually was the way that I was calling people. And no matter what the enemy tries to do, death now no longer has the final say. So resurrection was a hope by all people, right? You'll even see it in the story of Lazarus. Martha responds to Jesus when he says he'll rise from the dead. And she says, yeah, I know everyone will rise on the day of judgment or whatever. Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection in life, right? And so for Jesus, this future hope of resurrection that, all people have comes in the middle of history where no one expected and shows us what the actual future reality is meant to look like so what I think is really really important and then I'll hand it off to you to share some of your thoughts is when we wonder what God's good future is gonna look like right and there's lots of questions I don't think anyone can claim to have all the answers and if they do they're wrong um, but the one thing I'm convinced of is what our resurrected reality looks like is what, when we look at the person of Jesus and what happened to Jesus, this is what is promised for us. So there is a physical reality to it that goes beyond physicality. It is a body that is both at home in heaven and on earth, as N.T. Wright likes to say, right? And that is the promise. Jesus is what the Bible says, the first fruits, the first fruits of the full harvest that's coming. So that's what's so exciting is that when we look at the resurrection, it's not just like, well, that's good for Jesus or whatever. He is the literal representation of God's promise for everyone who believes and walks in obedience as a disciple to Jesus.
Yes. Oh man, oh, man. there's so, so much <laughs> thing that can be yeah, said sure. about, about the resurrection. I feel like you mentioned anti right, but there's so many other things that can be mentioned in that. But one other thing uh, I wanted to mention is I just like the story in in the book of Luke, uh, the walk to Emmaus, uh, where these these disciples are just walking there, and Jesus walk beside him and everything and i just feel like luke did a great job in kind of showing how that the death of jesus christ was kind of like a disappointment for for the disciple in the sense of you have these people who were really following jesus who were really there with him every single day and we're really hoping and you can see them crushed you know it's just like man we abandoned our home we followed this guy for the rest of for this whole three years we're just following him and everything you know and other people they even stopped being fishermen and everything they left their families to follow him and then now he's dead and now we're just walking back home we don't know what's gonna happen we don't know what's the future now you know and back home probably people will laugh at us oh where's the the person you guys were following and everything yeah. you know and then so them that just being crushed, all their hope, all their you know their joy just being crushed and everything. I just feel like Lucas, Lucas, uh, Lucas does a great job on that. And then Jesus Christ come and say, Hey, no, your hope is not dead. I'm here. You know, I'm alive and everything. And just in the meaning of 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 resurrection and everything, I feel like one thing that sometimes really fail to to do is. I have that question like what does it mean today uh, when we say Jesus is risen what does it mean for me right now as a Christian what does it mean and how that should shape my life you know how the fact that Jesus is not dead you know Jesus is risen and Jesus as you said is the first person you know to come into this new life and he kind of paved the way and so like i am going back to the father prepared you know uh i am preparing a place for you you know bringing that image of the temple and everything you know in the sense like ah, okay but in the sense of jesus christ is paving the way for us to come to go to to to, to go to him and he's paving the way say hey there is something good that is really coming there is news this new idea of restoration uh renewable of all creation and i am the first one who has been renewed and this because when you read the book, you start seeing like Jesus crossed, uh, went through walls and everything. What does that mean? Yeah. That means that Jesus was the first person to have these barriers, which is something that we can't fully understand now. But that means that the way we live now should be totally different because now we have a specific goal now we have a place that we are walking to and we're supposed to walk into that place not just as paul says like i struck my body so that uh i don't fail the goal i'm teaching other people but i don't fail the goal but also we have to be able to teach other people like say hey, there's amazing hope that is coming we can start living it right now on earth but it's coming and it will fully be revealed to us that's great yeah and i think it becomes the arch like you're saying the archetype of all christian hope jesus is the picture of what christian hope looks like and it's this idea that in the death and resurrection of jesus 
evil has been overcome in all its forms. Like you said, it's the residual presence of evil still exists. That's obvious when we look at our world. But the solution, the answer is resurrection life in the person of Jesus. And following, he, he continually says throughout his ministry and even afterwards, like we are meant to follow in the pattern of his life, which means self-giving love, proclamation to the truth no matter what it costs us and through our death and our resurrection um new life can come in right and i think that's the that is the reality in which we're called that people i don't know if they always understand it is not about you know god just wanting to bless you and give you every good thing it is about becoming the new kind of humanity in the midst of the old that's what the Bible means by sojourners or we're not from or of this world. It's not that like we're aliens and going to get transported. But when we are reborn in the image of Christ, when we become the Jesus kind of people, we are no longer at home in the old way of living. We are residents of God's future kingdom. And we can become, through the practice of obedience to Jesus, a glimpse of God's good future in the present. The resurrection makes that a reality, that our attitudes, our hearts, our minds— can become renewed to become people who are living in that future future anticipation in the present and that's what's so exciting to me that is what christian mission is all about it's about when we image bear jesus into our own lives we are literally transporting god's good future in a glimpse like a, a clouded mirror as paul likes to say into our current situations so when we trust god in the midst of loss in our family when we pray and we pray and we pray and we ask god to bring his reality um, on earth as it is in heaven we are embracing this idea that god bring your future goodness in anticipation to the day that you're going to make it all new um, and so i think it makes it valuable in the sense of nothing we do now is wasted right is it is it's an invitation to live and see god's good future in our present reality right um and kind of to bring it back to maybe the biblical narrative, it just proves that God's promises have really come true, right? The exile that the Jews had been waiting forever to see end has finally ended. God has returned. He has broken into new life. We are now freely able to embrace God, to bear his image again. Dark powers can no longer enslave us. Sin no longer has to hold our hearts. A new way of human being has arrived. The promises given to Abraham that he would have a family as numerous as the sand on the on the shore and that all nations would be blessed by him have come true and this image bearing project is restored there's a great it, literally i almost tear up every time i read it in the book of revelation when we get to revelation in the throne room with the scroll and john says he begins to weep because no one is able to open the scroll and that's where we were at before jesus no one was able to bring god's plans forward but then he looks and he sees the lamb, right? And I think it's a great image of what has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God's plan seemed like they were thwarted, that maybe evil actually could beat him. But then we look at Jesus and we see that, no, there is a way forward because of the lamb that was slain. Yes, I had a friend um, who was going through a lot of things. And the friend, that friend of mine was just, didn't have hope, you know, in the sense like, didn't know what to live for. Didn't know why should the person still alive. Didn't know why should the person fight, you know, for to be alive. And I, that's why I like this idea of uh, 
the idea that C.S. Lewis brings about, about the hell, you know, in the sense of, is this place where you have no hope? Is this place where you have nothing to fight for? You just look like there's nothing, there's no life there. You know, there's just nothing you can say, oh, I will wake up and I will go and fight for those things, you know. And I just feel like the devil tried to make people live that way even now. In the sense, people who have like um, suicidal thoughts, you know, those people think that there is nothing to fight for, you know, and just the death is the is just kind of the, it's already in them you know they're already dead they know they're already no hope in everything and i just feel like you go to prison you know it's kind of that thing you go to people who were sentenced for for life in prison you know they look at all the crappy life they're having and it's just like there's nothing i can still fight for you know there's nothing to look forward for and then what what christianity is is that thing that comes they said no there is a great thing to fight for. There is a happiness to fight for. There is a joy to fight for. There is amazing thing that you can start experiencing now. That's why when we go out and we serve these people in prison, when we go out and just sit there with them and just bring a little bit of joy and just pray for them and then they experience Christianity, they suddenly start realizing, like, no, I'm, it's not like I'm dead. There is still love. There is still hope. There is still joy in this place. That's why the, the, the definition of the of the heaven, you know, uh, the kingdom of God is this love is this this uh, joy in the spirit, you know, because those are the things that we have to go and share to those people who have no hope. And then suddenly we start realizing that these people didn't want to be alive, you know, they want to continue to be alive. Other than thinking about killing themselves, they say, no, there's something to fight for. Something that here starts here on earth, you know. And then once I'm dead, you know, once I die physically, that thing would be fully accomplished. That's why we so need to, Christians shouldn't be sitting down, sitting in the church and just be satisfied by that but should go out and destroy the lie that exists in those people's life and say jesus christ is risen the death has been defeated so there is hope there is something to fight yeah and i think the final thought i would share and then we should probably wrap up for the sake of time is this idea is in our own lives a lot of times people view death as like okay yeah the bible promises that we are in the presence of the lord but the christian hope is not to die and then go to some disembodied place. That is not the Christian hope. It's not what the Bible ever says. Um, the Christian hope is final resurrection, to be resurrected like Jesus was resurrected at his second coming, at his return, that you will raise everyone from the dead. And I think that gives me a lot more hope than some weird disembodied thing that I can't imagine or picture. But resurrection, what has happened to Jesus, the body of Jesus, right, is what is promised to everyone. And to me, that gives me a ton of hope. That makes me think there is a, a good future that I can't even comprehend, right? And it is that raising from the dead. The path, Because if death is the answer, then Jesus' death didn't accomplish anything. But it's the death and then the resurrection, which is the hope. Yes, uh, yes. So, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Um, it's, it's, it's like this thing. There is this um, image I, I shared with my friend. It's like, imagine... You have someone who is at the, uh, how can I say, his head is kind of being crushed by a lion, you know? And then you just come and just 
take away that person from that from from there you know it's like this person you come and steal him from that action like he the person is sure that he's dead and everything you know but then you're just coming and stripping him out of that and then showing like hey you're not dead you're still alive and everything you know and so that's what we are supposed to do that's why we're doing you know you go out and just like strip people from death you know take them from there say hey there is life there's something amazing that jesus christ started and there's something amazing that is about to come that's why they think the idea of heaven i just feel like sometimes messes our mind in the sense like we had bad view of that what it means to go to heaven you know we started believing that is the final destination that is what we are supposed to fight for you know we have to like control us to not seem to go be able to go in this amazing place where we'll rest you know and we forget all the things everything else like that's not the final destination you know the final destination is the final image in the book in the revelation is the marriage of heaven and earth coming and becoming one wow you spoiler alert <laughs> no oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> revelation yeah so Kind of to wrap things up, the disciples witness Jesus. He appears to them, kind of what we've alluded to in this conversation. Um, they're obviously amazed. They're stunned. You can even kind of see in the narratives, like, it's hard to put into words what exactly has happened. But um, the Gospel of Matthew specifically wraps up with this, and I think it's a great way to end for us because it's basically the starting point of what does this mean for for the Jesus people, right, our next episode. So here it is, Matthew 28. So the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus' final promise is that authority is now his, that he's with us, and our role in this is to go and make disciples, apprentices of Jesus, right? People who are um, replicas or students of the master. And so that's where we'll pick up how the disciples take that mission to the rest of the world um, and how the Jesus people, the people of God who are formed around this person, the resurrected Messiah, um, really change the course of history for the rest of the humanity. Yes, and yeah, and that action that it's why we're here today. Yes. So yeah, I think one of the big hope, my big hope is from the next uh, episode, people can leave with sense of knowing what to do today. What is my responsibility today as Christian? I think that's my hope for the next episode. So yeah, if you wanna have an answer to that, join, join the next. Stay episode. tuned. All right. Yeah. See you guys. See you guys. Bye. Hey everyone, this is just a brief reminder that if you've had a question come up from this discussion or you just have a question in general that you want to ask us on the podcast, uh, now is the time to do it. We want to make sure that we get these questions in for the end of the season Q&R uh, and we cannot wait to hear your guys' questions, to read them, and to be able to respond. But we can't do that unless you send them to us. So make sure if you're a part of Kingdom Movement already, you can personally message us your question or you can send them via our Instagram, and we will make sure to read those, and hopefully we will answer your question on the season finale question and answer, uh, question and response episode. All right, thanks guys.